tonight. This morning, we are returning to our study of Samuel. We will finish 1 Samuel and next week begin 2 Samuel. This morning, we will read about the death of King Saul. This is 1 Samuel 31. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Mountains in the Old Testament are generally associated with worship. They are places of worship. Saul dies on this mountain, and in a sense, one commentator said that it was like he was providing a sacrifice to remove the curse of his own rule from over the people, from over the land. Verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. In particular, for me, the death of Jonathan feels um, like a real tragedy because it happens with absolutely no fanfare. There's no, um, there's nothing to this. It just says Jonathan died, right? And that's sad because Jonathan has been an important part of the story in 1 Samuel. And we've known Jonathan to be a good and honorable man. Um, But this was the plan of God. Jonathan served his purpose and now he dies fighting beside his father. Verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Verse 7, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. If you remember when we studied chapter 30 several weeks ago, David's life was also in jeopardy. David's own men were threatening to kill him because the Amalekites had pillaged their city and had taken their families, their wives and children. But David faced the possibility of death another time, right? Because he's faced death many times. And again, David turns to God, the text said in, in 1 Samuel 30 that David strengthened himself in the Lord. And so side by side, you have these two chapters. In one, David is in peril 
and he turns to God, but Saul, in peril, decides to take his own life. And those two stories, side by side, highlight the main theme of 1 Samuel one last time. You remember the question that we asked in the very beginning, that we asked over and over again. Is God enough? Will you trust Him? Will you fear God more than men or circumstances or anything else? And if you remember, fearing God means giving Him the ultimate weight in your life. It means giving to Him or ascribing to Him the glory or the weight that that He deserves because He's God. And Saul proves that this is a matter of life and death. Taking his own life, in a sense, was failing to ascribe to God the glory that He deserves. And this was not a surprise to God. This was God's plan. Saul was meant to die on that mountain, on that day, in that way. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now, this is just kind of an interesting side note, but the fact that Saul's body remained on the mountain to be plundered by the Philistines is significant because in ancient times, soldiers would not usually abandon the body of their king like this. And so it means that the men had already fled in fear or they didn't care enough about Saul to give him a decent burial. The text actually tells us that the men that were with Saul were were killed, but there were men nearby who fled, right? And so Saul died alone and his body abandoned, which is significant. Verse 9. So they cut off Saul's head and they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now, once again, this was not a surprise To God. This was the plan of God. Saul and his household were being punished as God intended, as had been prophesied. And his household would be erased. Okay, so this was this was God working out his plan as as intended. But in the eyes of the Philistines, in the eyes of the enemy, this was a victory of their God over the Hebrew God, right? It says that they they carry the good news to the people, right? So extra, extra, read all about it. Ashtaroth defeats Yahweh. Saul and his sons hang dead on the walls of our city. 
And I don't want us to read right past that and not recognize the significance of it. Because even though God is working out His plan, for a moment, this looks like defeat. And is defeat. Now, of course, they're underestimating Yahweh. This is temporary. And even in this, there's a hint of the gospel, which we will see. But it still looks bad. Okay, verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh, or Jabesh, Gilead, sorry, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So the men of Jabesh Gilead show bravery. They go to reclaim the body of Saul. If you remember early in Saul's reign, he had taken a rescue mission to this city and had rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so they're the ones who go to redeem Saul and his son's bodies to make sure that Saul is given a proper burial. And so I want you to see God allows his anointed king, which is what Saul was, to hang in disgrace for a brief moment on the walls of an enemy city, but it's only for a moment. But this was the first official king in Israel. He had been chosen by God. He had been anointed by God's prophet. And he's hanging dead on the wall of an enemy city. And even though it's just for a moment, it should strike us as as a dark moment. But do you remember the song of Hannah from chapter 2? If you remember, Hannah was the mother of Samuel. And she said this, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. And that's the story. God raised Saul up and God brought Saul down. But I want you for just a second to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. They asked for a king. And God gives them a king. And they accept this king because this man is tall and strong. He's a head taller than everyone else, right? But now in this moment, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Our army is defeated. Our king, the one that we asked God to provide, 
whom God provided and anointed by his prophet, that king is dead. And his sons are all dead, so we can't make one of them a king. And so the average Israelite had to be scared and confused. What happened? Is it our fault? Is it God's fault? Is He weak? Did He pick the wrong man? Did He did He fall asleep on the day of the battle? Like what, What's going on here, right? Either way, whoever's to blame, if you're an Israelite, this feels like failure. It feels like defeat. It's not a good feeling. It's just not, it's just not the way things should be. It's not right. And you're asking yourself, what in the world do we do now? And you know what? I bet, I bet the disciples felt something similar on the weekend after Jesus died. Their rabbi had been brutally killed. His body hung on a cross outside the city walls for everyone to see. And Satan was basking in what looked like God's defeat. Think about the women. Mark chapter 16 tells us that on the morning of the third day, some of the women who were Jesus' disciples went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus with spices And they didn't actually know how they were going to do it because there was a giant stone rolled over the tomb's entrance. But they went because it was the right thing to do. In a way, it was like, okay, he may be dead, but he was still our rabbi, right? Just as the men of Jabesh Gilead went to retrieve Saul's body, he may be dead, but he's still our king, right? And so this connection that I want you to see between the death of Saul and the death of Jesus is, it seems pretty obvious to me, with one important difference. Saul, of course, deserved it. Jesus, of course, did not. But just as Hannah said, it is God who kills and raises up. It is God who brings low and who exalts. Jesus was intentionally brought low and then exalted by God. The woman or the women who went to the tomb in Mark 16 discovered an empty tomb. There was no body to anoint with spices because God's anointed one had been raised to life again. Now see, we have to see the big picture because the big picture tells us something really important about God. If you only look at the moment, you're going to miss it. But if you look at the big picture of what's happening in Samuel and what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in the whole Bible, what you find above anything else, maybe the most important lesson in the Bible, I think I could dare to say this, is that God's glory 
is very high on God's agenda. God's glory is very high on the list, if not the highest, of what God wants to accomplish. He was not content to let Israel have a king like all the other nations. Not going to happen. It's what they wanted, but that's not what God wanted. 1 Samuel 31 uses the word fell. F-E-L-L, fell, four times. Okay, The men of Israel fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Saul fell on his sword. The armor bearer fell on his sword. And then the Philistines discovered Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa four times. And I think this is significant because if you go back to 1 Samuel 5, the same form of that word was used. And I want us to read part of that story again. It says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. That's their false god. And they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But comically, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now guys, listen, God is such a good storyteller. There's no way that's a coincidence, okay? The false god of the Philistines fell with his head cut off. But there's another example. 1 Samuel 17. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. And what? Cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Just like the Israelites fled when they saw that their king was dead. The giant fell and David cut off his head. What's the connection? Well, it's this. In the end, God will protect His glory even from His own King. Saul fell and his head was cut off just like the Philistine champion 
just like the false god. Saul was the king the people wanted. He was literally a head taller than everyone else until he wasn't. And guys, God wrote this story. Saul fell short of the glory of God. And this is me, and this is you in the story. Romans 3 All have fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. God's glory is extremely high on God's agenda. The question is how high is God's glory on our agenda? How much does His glory matter to us? And listen, I know that that sounds like a very churchy question, right? Okay, so if you're not used to churchy language and you don't think in these terms and you hear me say that and it's like, what does that mean? How high is God's glory on my agenda? And I got to be honest with you, even as a pastor, I struggle to find a good answer to that question. But I want you to think with me. Think back over the stories in 1 Samuel. What's the real difference between someone who cares about God's glory and someone who does not? And there may be several different ways to answer that question, but... One way, I think, is to ask it like this. What do you do in a moment of crisis? How do you handle a moment of crisis? Because story after story, not only in Samuel, but in Judges and in Ruth that we studied this past year, Story after story, crisis after crisis, this has been the recurring question. In a time of crisis, do you reach for God and His strength or your own? That's what it always seems to boil down to, doesn't it? Am I reaching for God? Am I turning to Him? Am I seeking His wisdom, His guidance, His strength in this particular crisis? Or am I relying on my own wisdom, my own strength, my own decisions to guide me. Where does my strength lie? Before the people had a king, the Philistines captured the ark and God brought it back without help from anyone else. He literally used two milk cows and a cart to bring the ark back home. No humans were involved. Saul lost the kingdom when he stopped listening to God. When he stopped obeying the voice of God. And in contrast, the stories of David showed us that every victory belongs to God. When David killed Goliath, he didn't do it to make a name for himself. What did he say? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Not me, but the armies of the living God. 
And here at the end of Saul's life, David is faced with the same threat of death. And he reaches out to God while Saul reaches for his sword. And that is a picture of all humanity. In the end, at the point of crisis, we will either reach for God and His strength or we will fall on our own sword. That is the choice. And in that moment, Saul rejected God. He was consumed by pride or unbelief or whatever it was. And if that is our choice, what it shows is that we are apart from Christ. In our hearts, in that moment, that choice, that, that's, that's where our faith is tested. Brothers and sisters, it is in the moments of crisis when our faith is tested. Is God enough? Will we trust Him? Will we fear God more than men or circumstances or anything else? And that is our calling. I want to end by reading 1 Peter Chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says this, Peter says this, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see Peter's obsession with the glory of God and how he links it to the suffering of Christ and how we suffer. How in those moments of crisis, it's the best test of faith. It's the best opportunity for the gospel. It's the best opportunity to demonstrate that our trust, our faith is in Him. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, This is one of the ways that Jesus Himself promises to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Because this table reminds us that we are not getting what we deserve. Jesus took what we deserve. And He gives us a seat at His table. And in truth, every single one of us in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. But the suffering and humility of Jesus Christ our King has brought us near once more to God. As we prepare for the table, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word, which always amazes me. It always 
comforts me and challenges me in ways that I don't expect, Lord. Um, We want to be David's, but in truth, we're much more like Saul. Or even the the men who fled from the battle and left their king lying dead on the battlefield just as the disciples ran off when Jesus was crucified. But Lord, we ask You to take this, not to discourage us, but to to remind us that because of what Jesus has done, it is finished and we have been brought near. I pray that as we take this supper this morning, You would restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. May we cast all our anxieties upon You. Whatever the crisis may be for us, Lord, whether this morning it is relational problems or spiritual problems, whether it is financial crisis or health crisis or mental crisis, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would bring these things and cast them at your feet and trust you that we would turn to your strength, your mighty hand, so that at the proper time we may be exalted. Father, make this table a means of grace for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, um, we'll invite you to come down the middle aisle and uh, take the supper, take it back to your seat. Um, before we do that, I just want to remind you this table is uh, it doesn't belong to me or this church. It's open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have done so publicly. Um, if you've not done that, please don't come. But I would love to talk to you about um, the work of Christ and and your faith in receiving the gospel. But Um, As you come this morning, hear the words of institution on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Lord Jesus took bread and He broke it, prayed and offered it to His disciples and said, This is My body which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, He took the cup and said, This cup represents the new covenant which is in My blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Amen.